Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. Hey, normally there's a, a dancing skeleton that would come out right now or something, some type of video or transition into the theme of the series that we're talking about or whatever, but today we have really a special treat. Uh, my friend Shane Willard is here, and um, it's cool to get to say that too, because sometimes you, you have guest speakers that come in and they're just... They're just dudes, or they're just guys, or girls that are great communicators, or this, that, the other. But it's my privilege because he's my friend, and it didn't, it didn't start out that way. Um, the way this started out was he was he was kind of a, a guy that's a friend of mine knew, and he said, "Todd, he said, have you ever heard of this guy?" I'm like, "No," and he's dude, dude, dude. He's totally a white guy, right? <laughs> dude, you've got to check this guy out. And I'm like, "All right, yeah." So he sends me some like cds and i like oh my gosh this is ridiculous and i'm like do you think do you think he would would he come because this guy travels the world and uh he goes oh no 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 he's the coolest dude he's super friendly he's super approachable he's not this kind of highfalutin high maintenance dude he's totally and so anyway so i, I literally we just kind of connected over the phone at first and i said hey and you know again trying to figure out how to get a world travel guy here and so it just happens to be that when you travel from australia back to america you come through san francisco and so it just happened to work out and so he's been coming to this church for about five years now i think maybe i'd, I'd have to like really think hard and i don't want to but it's a it's a it's about five years now that i think and so you know it started out and man he's just been a part of our world at least once a year for the last several years now and it's always a treat when he comes he's a dear friend um and, and let me tell you this about about shane how am i doing on time because i could talk about shane for a minute because here, here's what i want you to know about him um this guy is the real deal meaning like um he's he's smoking what he's selling he is totally <laughs> he's totally believes in what he says, but this is the more powerful part to me, because there's sometimes shallowness in people, right? This guy truly lives out what he believes, which is what he teaches and preaches. And, and this guy, and I could go on and on and how I could explain that, but I, he, and he'll share with you some of the things he's doing through, whether it's orphanages or, or rehabilitation centers or whatever it is. But this guy is just a fantastic guy. I want you to open up your mind because you're going to need that today because usually he drops something on you that... You know, and then I want you to open up your heart and just listen to what he has to say. You're going to be blessed. Please invite, give a big new beginnings welcome to my friend Shane Willard. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> All right, thank you. If you're like, if you're the type that likes to follow along in a Bible, First John chapter three, or an iPad or iPhone, whatever. If you don't care about that, we've made slides um, for you. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, it's an honor to be back with you guys. I always like coming through here and spending time with my friend. Todd and Tara Lee Hendricks, they're just awesome people and I had a great time this week with them. Um, on your way out, you're going to see a gigantic resource table. Um, that is our resource table. Everything we have is in four formats, CD, DVD, USB, and direct download. So I can just make it appear on your phone now because my brother's a genius. If you cannot find my resource table, seek medical help. It's taking up half the foyer out there. If you look at that and you say, man, why do you carry all that stuff around? Here's why. Because we make a heaping load of money from it. That's why, right? And the reason we do that is because we believe we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. That if you're living a life and your whole goal is to go to heaven when you die, that is boring. 
All right. That's an okay message if you're 90. All right. But it's not okay if you're 24 and able bodied and you're sitting on your butt waiting to go to heaven when you die. I would suggest that life could be about so much more than that. And so we believe that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so the way the way we run our business is um, I run my entire life on honorariums and love offerings and um, my plane tickets, my salary, my office cost, all of that. A hundred percent of the profit from our table goes to our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that take care of mentally handicapped children. Let me give you an example of the power of that table. Because of that table, we were able to give 57,000 U.S. dollars to an um, orphanage in China that takes care of mentally handicapped children in May. And then from May till now, we've been taking the profit and storing it up for our thing in Cape Town that's actually recognized by the Department of Justice in Cape Town as a viable option to Polesmore Prison. We have a men's side. We have a women's side um, that gets the prostitutes out of sex trafficking. And now we've just taken on a home full of children whose parents have died of AIDS. And so the profit from what you buy today will go there. All right. Because that's what we are all about. We've got four new ones since last time I was here. So even if you bought everything last time, go on back there. It's there. You can tell which ones are new by the big stacks. All right. So you can go on back there. Check that out. I also have an online mentoring program up and rolling. Where once a month I'm in an online classroom teaching people how to see the Bible like my rabbi taught me. So if you're interested in that, um, come on in. All right. So I want to talk to you about First John and, pr- pr- and uh, primarily about what it means to be a follower of Jesus based on something he wrote and how he framed what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. Now, because we're going to read First John chapter 3, you cannot just pick something out of the center of a book and then start talking about it. It's inappropriate. So I need to set up some context for this. Let me try to explain the context of First John by talking to you about pastors. Every pastor I've ever met in the world started out in ministry with this idea. We want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. That's literally how simple it starts. We want to connect people to Christ in order to make the world a better place. But then you start pastoring and it becomes about other things than that because it has to. As a pastor, you'd spend 25% of your week being a bad real estate agent. And you're dealing with building issues and government codes and parking easements and mortgage bankers and worse people's opinion about those buildings and government codes and carpet color And things breaking, you're dealing with that. And you just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Then you spend another 25% of your week being a bad counselor. And I'm not talking about when people go through suffering, it is a grace on a pastor's life to suffer with them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who make the same stupid decision every single week and they come see you about it and you tell them something they could change, but then they don't. And then they come back every single week after that. And everything inside of you wants to scream at them, would you just stop it and do what I tell you to do? But you can't because you live amongst them. But I can because I fly on a plane tomorrow. That is what happens. So you spend 25% of your week being a bad counselor. Then you spend 25% of your week being a bad theological referee, because I know this is going to surprise you, but there are sometimes Christians would rather sit around and argue about petty Bible verses than do something about world hunger. Now, if that's you, if you would rather argue about petty verses of scripture rather than fix the global starvation problem, I've got I've got a word for you, and I think I speak for the whole room, and that is this. You are annoying, all right? You are annoying. And so what happens is is that ends up in our office. And what happens is is we just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. But we're spending 25% of our week doing this, 25% of our week doing that, 25% of our week doing this. Now, can you imagine how hard it would have been to pastor a church in the first century? Can you imagine how hard it would have been to be a pastor in 57 A.D.? couple of observations. This should be obvious, but sometimes it's not. They didn't have a Bible. There was no book. 
The Bible you're holding in your hand or reading on an iPad was put together in the mid 300s by the Council of Nicaea. The Bible was being written. What became the Bible was being written in the in the mid to late first century. And so if you're trying to pastor a church in 57 A.D., you literally have no book. How do you pastor a church without a book? That's that, that's one. All you had was this. Jesus is the Christ. He was crucified and the resurrection is true. That's literally that's all you had. And isn't it interesting that when the church was experiencing its most exponential growth, it was at a time in history where they didn't have a book to argue about. Hmm. Now, so there, there there was that. And so can you imagine trying to pastor a church and you have no book and you have people with similar opinions about God as would exist Today. And one of the problems with the Old Testament was it was written down. And here was the problem with that is once something is in writing, it's very hard to change it. And so the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ in the first century, they were trying to decide which parts of the Old Testament do you leave behind and which parts of the Old Testament do you carry forward because, you know, it's God's word. But yet when you go into Corinth, you can't exactly demand that the men of Corinth get circumcised in order to join the church. If we make people get circumcised in order to join the church, it's going to be detrimental to church growth. And so there was, a, can I get an amen on that one at least, right? And so, and so there was, yeah, so, so there was people going, you know what? We know it's in Leviticus, but we need to leave that part of Leviticus behind because the love of Christ can overcome that because we can't make men in Corinth undergo major surgery in order to join the church. That's just crazy. And we probably need to leave the bacon stuff behind because people in Corinth and Athens and Rome, they like their bacon and we can't go in there going, you can join us, but you got to quit eating bacon. You can't do that. So there was all this wrestling with how much of the Bible do we leave behind in order to spread the love of Christ to our existing world? That's not relevant to us at all, is it? And so you've got all this going on. You're trying to pastor a church. And you just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. And you've got opinions and opinions. And you've got debates and you've got arguments. And there was all these arguments going on. Like there was an argument about people saying, you know, we should leave part of Leviticus behind in order to spread the love of Christ. There was another group of people saying we shouldn't. There was a group of people saying that Jesus had flesh on. There was another group of people saying he didn't actually have skin on because he, he, you can't die and rise again. We, we believe in Jesus, but we think he was a 33-year spiritual aberration. So you're trying to pastor a church. You've got group A saying that Jesus had flesh on. You've got another group saying he didn't. You've got one group saying Leviticus should stand. You've got another group saying it shouldn't. You've you got one group... That, one other debate was how, how well did the cross work? And you got one group of people saying the cross worked for the whole world. You got another group of people saying the cross only works if you do the right rituals at the right moment at the right time, right? So you, so you got one group of people saying the cross worked for everybody. And you got another group of people saying the cross only works if you do our rituals. Aren't you glad we avoided that one, right? And then, and then, then you have another group saying that love was the ultimate command. And as long as you're loving people, that's enough. And, and then you got another group of people saying, yes, it's faith in Christ alone and it's love, but you also got to do our rituals. So you have group A saying this, group B saying this, another group saying this. You got this guy saying that Jesus had flesh on, another group saying he didn't. You got one group saying the cross worked, another group saying it didn't work so well. You got one group saying that faith in Christ alone is enough for life, and another group saying, yeah, it's faith in Christ, but you got to also do Leviticus. You got to do all this. And then in the middle of all that, you'd have some guy showing up at church going, hey, I know you're arguing about all this stuff, and I'm a prophet, and I got a word from God, and this guy gives his word from God, and you're supposed to test the prophecy, but the problem is you don't have a book to test it against, and so what's your testing criteria? Was he a nice guy? What do you do? You got another guy showing up here. Then in the middle of your church in Galilee in 57 AD, you got a guy showing up going, you know what? You're arguing about all this stuff, and I went to junior high with Peter's second cousin, Bill, and I asked Bill about this, and Bill's pretty sure that Jesus would say this, and you got another guy going, you know what? I went to senior high with Jesus' stepbrother, James, and I asked James what Jesus 
Jesus would say about this. James was pretty sure Jesus would say this. And the problem was, was there wasn't an MP3 file folder full of Jesus' sayings that you could go back and check it. It was all word of mouth. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. (laughs) It's in the middle of that that John chooses to write a letter to try to right the ship. And if you read 1 John from the beginning, here's what you read. Everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true since the beginning of time. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. Jesus just showed you what God was always like. That's one. Second, when Jesus forgives sin, he forgives all sin. He doesn't leave any unturned. And third, when he forgives sin, he includes the whole world in that. Now, after that, he ends all of his theology. And here's what he says. Here's what the whole rest of the book's about. What difference does it make if you're the rightest church in Livermore, California, if you're not known for being the nicest group of people in Livermore, California? What difference does it make if you understand all this deep theology, if all of your knowledge about God doesn't motivate you to be a more loving person? What difference does it make if you understand all the mysteries of the third heaven, if it doesn't motivate you to be kinder to a brother and sister? What difference does it make if you're the rightest group of people in the whole world, if you're not known for being the kindest group of people in the whole world? Because if the church of Jesus Christ ever got known for being the rightest group of people instead of the kindest group of people, it would ruin them. It's in that context that we read this. If you guys could bring that first slide up. It's 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message... For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now watch this next one. We... Know that we have passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrine straight. Nope. We know we passed from death to life because there's no error in our creed. Uh-uh. We're no creeds back then. We know we've passed from death to life because we said all of our sins to a priest and got absolved. Uh-uh. We know we passed from death to life because we responded to an altar call and prayed a magic prayer that was made up in 1830 to help people know they can go to heaven when they die. Nope. We, have I killed everybody yet? Good. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother and sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So the earliest way that John framed what it meant to be a follower of Jesus was simply this. Are you a loving person? Now, this has huge implications for us in 2015 in Livermore about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Next slide. One, when we love someone, we're experiencing some version of eternal life now. To John, when we hate somebody, we're experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease now. See, for us, life and death are static images. You live, you die. Not to a first century Jew. A first century Jew, life and death were dynamic dimensions that you moved in and out of. If you were living in God's ways, you were said to be living in life, light, increase. If you were living outside of God's ways and your life was going to disrepair, you were said to be living in death, darkness, and decrease. These were not um, literal things. These were framed as choices. Life, death, choose life. Well, That's not literal because you don't choose to be born, right? You don't choose when you die. Life and death were were framed as choices. Are you going to live in God's ways or are you not going to live in God's ways? Blessings, curses, light, dark. Choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Don't run from darkness. Flee darkness. These are choices. For us, life and death are static images. You live and you die. Not to John. Next slide. For us, 
The question is always how to have life after you die. So the question is always, what happens after death? Like if I died today and you came to my funeral on Wednesday and then I showed up here next Sunday, I would ruin your service, right? Oh my God, Shane Willard's back. Get him a mic. And so you get him a mic. And we say, you know what? This guy died last Sunday. Um, We witnessed his funeral on Wednesday and here he is. We're going to have Q&A. We're going to cancel church, right? Because we're literally scared to death, which fits right in with your series, right? So we go, you know what, Uh, Shane, now how many questions would we get through before someone said what happened after you died? It would be the first question. It would, I would get asked that before I got asked, are you thirsty, right? It would be like, hey, hey, you lived, you died, you rose again. What, what happened after you died? But that never happened to Jesus. Jesus comes back from the dead and no one goes. No one's, no one's fascinated. No one's, um, it's like they expected it almost in one sense. In another sense, they didn't. But then their questions befuddle me. Like Jesus comes back from the dead. How much does he talk about heaven? None. How much does he talk about hell? None. I, that's amazing. What's more amazing is no one asked him. He comes back from the dead. No one goes, hey, you're back. What was heaven like? What's hell like? I heard you preach there. How'd your altar call go? You know what? When you rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. Where'd they come from? All these amazing things they could have asked about, but that's not what they asked. Jesus comes back from the dead and they go, hey, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? (laughs) Is it now we're going to establish the kingdom? See, for us, it's always about life after death. But to a first century Jew, it was how to have life before you die. How to live now. The word he uses is metababakamen, which is a long Greek word that simply means to change basis. Essentially, John says, if you're finding your life on the basis of death and you want to move it to the basis of life, here's your first choice. It's not to get your doctrine straight as if anybody ever does that. It's not to know more about the Bible. There was no Bible back then. If you want to move your life from, life, from death to life, here's your first choice. Make a staunch dedicated decision that to live a life of love for somebody else. And when you live a life of love for somebody else, you have been moved. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Now, this has huge applications for us. Hit that next one for me. What John says one entry point into life is to commit to loving each other. Let's say it a couple different ways. Central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. And I'm talking about big things. Everything's free, like life, free. None of you chose to be born. None of you put your parents together. None of you gave them amorous feelings for one another. None of us chose to be born. And because of where I'm standing, I'll say this. None of us chose where we were born. You were born in America, man. Like, honestly, one of the top five greatest nations in the world. When I come home after traveling the world and I hear people complain about America, I'm like, listen, if you can't make it in America, where are you going to go? We drive motor cars on paved roads to stores that prepackage food for us. We have water in a tap. We have a machine that does our washing, another machine that does our drying. And we're going to complain about America? Come on. You live in the Bay Area. The weather's perfect. Biggest problem in the Bay Area is whoever designed the roads thought no one would ever show up. That's the biggest problem. We're going to complain. Life is free. You could have been born in South Sudan where you get genocided just because you're in a different tribe. You could have been born in a rural part of South Africa, deep sluting, places like this where they don't even have sewer. You've got, you got, you got 4,000 people sharing eight portalettes. 
You've been more in there. Man, America's good. America's doing it hard, man. Imagine, believe how bad America's getting. It's like, what? Like, are you, are, are you kidding me? Jesus overcame the Roman Empire, and we think he's threatened by our politics? What? Life is free. Breath, free. Everybody take a deep breath in. And then out. That was free. For now. Some point they'll tax it, but right now. Free. And you know what? The only people who don't take breath for granted, because we do it just involuntarily, we, the only people who don't take breath for granted are asthmatics, people with pneumonia, people with emphysema, or if you've ever choked. If you've ever, if ever choked. I, I choked once at a restaurant. It was at a Thai restaurant in Chermside, Australia, which is right outside of Brisbane. And I was with someone I'd never met before. It was a pastor and his wife. And I swallowed a piece of calamari, and, and there was a string on it. And one went down the right way, and one went down the wrong way. And literally every way to get wind was blocked. And I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't get it out of my throat. And I, I, I suddenly panicked. Suddenly I would have written a check for everything I have for one breath. Because when you can't breathe, it suddenly becomes priceless. And when you can't breathe, you become okay with things you weren't okay with before. Like an Asian man I'd never met before sticking his fingers in my mouth. I'd never... <laughs> That was an odd thing. I'd never met the guy, and he had me in the headlock and putting his fingers in my mouth. And I loved it. I was like, yeah! Get you some of that! No, nothing in me was like, did you wash your hands? I didn't care. Why? Those fingers could have been anywhere. Didn't matter. He was clearing my windpipe. I didn't know him, but I loved it. Why? I couldn't breathe. Breath is free. Forgiveness, free. No, no, no one in here, this is your story. You know what? God wasn't going to forgive me, but then I prayed the right prayer at the right moment, the right time, in the right posture. You know what? God was like, you know what? I wasn't going to forgive you, but now I will. <laughs> nope. Resurrection, free. And we take it for granted because it's literally everywhere. It's in this room right now. Let me prove it to you. It's a good chance to check your watch without getting caught, right? All you got to do, I want you to look at the back of your hand, right? So I want everybody to take a second, look at the back of your hand. And I want you to become aware of something, that the skin on the back of your hand is 28 days old. It's brand new from 28 days ago. And you know what? We take that for granted. And that's why we don't panic. In the wintertime when we wake up and there's dandruff on our pillowcase, we don't panic. We don't go, oh, I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. This rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, we just know resurrection is everywhere. Eternal life, salvation, all of that free. It's all free. Which leads me to this question. Have we ever lost sight at the big things God has given us at the altar of not being able to figure every little thing out? Hey, let's say it this way. Have we ever lost the opportunity to be overwhelmed at the big things God has done for us at the altar of we don't understand every little thing? Would you rather be lost in the presence of God in worship or would you rather understand all the verses about worship? I would just rather be lost in the presence of God in worship. If God lets me understand it, cherry on top. Would you rather see someone healed or would you rather understand all the verses about healing? I'd just rather see them healed. Sometimes we lose the opportunity to be overwhelmed at the big things God is doing at the altar of having to figure every thing out. Let's say it another way. Next slide. If all of life is a gift and certain things don't belong in the life, things like greed, that doesn't belong. Complaining. Christmas is coming up. And if you give someone a Christmas gift and they open that Christmas gift and their response is, really? That's your best effort, right? If, 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 someone, if someone does that, if someone does that, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? Always the gift receiver, which leads me to this question. How many times do we do that with God? 
God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you life and breath and free forgiveness and free eternal life and a promise of resurrection so death doesn't win. I'm going to give you all this. I'm going to allow you to be born in America where you have motor cars and paved roads and running water and you have laws that protect the weak against the strong. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to do all this for you. And, and how many of us look back at God and go, yeah, is that your best? Is that all you got? Really? Like, I want somebody else's life. Which leads me to this question. Have you ever lost sight of what you do have at the altar of what you don't? Because there's nothing attractive about a person who's lost sight of what they do have at the altar of what they don't. Let me illustrate this with this. I used to be on staff at a mega church. It was gigantic. And my, one of my jobs was I was the single adults pastor, right? So my job was to minister to all the single adults. And we built a big thing. Um, my last night there on a Monday night, we had 280 single adults. And I enjoyed uh, that, that season in my life. But there was part of it I didn't enjoy because single adults are notorious for wanting something they don't have. Namely, a spouse. So half my week was spent hearing this. Shane, I just want to be married. I want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, 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 I want to be married. I'm thinking, no, you don't. Listen. Listen, let me be frank, okay? I mean, if you're a single adult, you listen to me. Listen. If you can't cope being single, you don't have a prayer on earth coping being married. Man, I'd serve God if I just was married. If I could do more. What? You gonna have more time then? You gonna have more energy when you're chasing around kids? You gonna have more money? Not. I just want to be married. I want to be married. I just want to be. I want to be. I want to be. It's, it's unbelievable. Listen, if you're 26, able-bodied and single, be the greatest single person you can possibly be. Listen, there's nothing attractive about sitting around just wanting what you don't have. And the prayer of a single person just tickles me anyway. It goes something like this. Dear white English-speaking Jesus, dear blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sweet-smelling of lavender and dowel soap Jesus, um, Shane here, I'm 26, I'm able-bodied, and I'm single. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't have to run it by anybody. I don't have to feel guilty about doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, dear English-speaking Jesus, no one on this earth is spending my money other than me. (laughs) But despite all of that, I'm still stressed. So here's what I'm asking you to do, Lord Jesus. I'm asking you to entrust me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder. (laughs) The problem was is that the other part of my job at this church was I was the church psychotherapist because I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I'm a qualified marriage, family, and sex therapist, okay? So, so my, other, my other job was to do all the marriage counseling in church. So half my week was spent with this. Shane, I want to be married. 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 The other half of my week was spent with this. Shane, I want to be single. I want to be single. I want, I want to be single. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I can hook you all up. I don't know what to do. The married people wanted to be single, the single people wanted to be married, and no one wanted to bloom in the field God planted them in. Like, if you're married, make it the best marriage in the room. What other choice do you have? Pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief? And if you're single, be the best single person in the room. Put the throttle. Listen, the most attractive single people in the world are people with the throttle all the way to the ground doing everything God's called them to do. And then one day they wake up and they realize someone's doing it with them. For goodness sake, bloom in the field God planted you in. And and, and listen, one more thing. Listen, let me just talk to you single adults for a second, okay? You married people, listen up. And at the end of all this, you better say amen. Because I'm right about this. 
You, listen, single adults, listen. You do not need to find the one. That is ridiculous. You need to become the one that the person you're looking for is looking for. If you become the one, listen, put your list away. They're embarrassing. Pastor Shane, I believe in God for a spouse. I believe in God for a spouse. I've, I've got my list. I've got my list. There was this guy. This is a while back now. I said, let me see your list. He showed me. His, Have you seen these lists? I am convinced this woman does not exist. This man, this man's list was she was blonde for the sake of appropriateness, curvy. She was uh, intelligent, passionate, faithful, dependable, of good character. She was financially successful, and she was emotionally low maintenance. All in one power-packed package. I said, mate, tells you where he lived. I said, mate, this girl's a 10. He goes, of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you're believing God, you believe God for a 10. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of the possible. He's the God of bigger and stronger. Of course she's a 10. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. If this girl came in your life tomorrow, she wouldn't give you the time of day. You don't need to find this girl. You need to become a seven and then lower your standards 30% and something might happen. Listen, 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 listen. One more thing. If you're single, listen to me. You can take it, leave it, whatever. It won't affect my life at all. But listen, and at the end of this one, you married people better say amen. Because I'm right about this. Whew. Never, ever, 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 ever ask someone to change while you're dating. You're already getting their best behavior. Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you... Fails to impress you. Leave. When you're dating, yep, yep, yep. When you're dating someone, pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five. Add some horrendous smells under the covers, and you've got marriage. If you still love them, they're the one. And all the married people said. Bloom in the field God planted you in. Let's say it this way. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. Essentially, Jesus treated you as you don't deserve. One of the things Jesus said is he said, if you want to know what God's like, this is so powerful. He said, if you want to know what God's like, look at birds. Birds do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them. Flowers do nothing to deserve it, but God clothes them. How much more worth are you? And in other words, Jesus said, if you want to know what God's like, God treats people as they are worth, not as they deserve. God treats people as they're worth, not as they deserve. Let me go back to marriage for a second. Whoever has the greatest marriage in the room, whoever that is, I don't know, but let me, let me just tell you what I do know about them. Whoever has the greatest marriage in the room, they have figured out a way to treat each other as they are worth and not as they deserve. You do not love your wife because she deserves it. There are days she will deserve it. There are other days, not so much. That's called life. You do not, you love, you love your wife not because she deserves it, but because she's worth it to you. You do not, you do not respect your husband because he deserves it. There will be days where he will amaze you with his superior intellect and leadership ability. Other days, he's going to be a flippant idiot. That is called life. 
You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it. You don't love your wife because she deserves it. You love your wife because she's worth it. Kingdom people never treat people as they deserve. They always treat people as they're worth. Which leads me to this question. Do we treat people as they're worth or as they deserve? John keeps going. This is the very next verse. Watch this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In other words, you got what you don't deserve. I'm, I'm urging, as followers of Jesus, here's the earliest framing of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Are you treating people as they deserve or as they're worth? You got what you don't deserve. Look around and give people what they don't. Let's take care of it. But then he frames it even more. Watch this. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? I love that. I love that. In other words, if you see a need you could meet, it does you no good to feel guilty about things you can do nothing about. But if you see a need and you know you can meet it and you can purposely turn your back on that and you think God lives in you, how? What's your theology for that one? What's your bullet point for that one? What's your fundamental truth for that one? Oh, I prayed a magic prayer once. Oh, right. But you can see a need you could meet and then purposely turn your back on that need and you think God lives in that how? I love how he does it. He does it in true rabbi fashion. He just leaves it as a question for us to wrestle with. He doesn't give us the answer. If you see a need you could meet and you purposely do nothing about that need and God lives in that how, what's going on there? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, all these debates, all these arguments, don't listen to people's argument. Listen to their life. If you want to know who belongs to the truth and how to set your hearts at rest in his presence, simply ask one question. Am I committed to meeting needs? When I see a need I could meet, am I committed to treating those people as they are worth before God and not as they deserve because they could never do anything in return for me? Mentally handicapped orphans can't do anything in return for me, but we're going to feed them. Why? Because they're worth it, not because they deserve it. These kids in Cape Town we're trying to help, they'll never be able to repay me one cent. But we don't do that because they deserve it. We do it because they're worth it. This is how we can know that we belong to the truth. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God's greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his command. By the way, the word keep there is not obey. The word keep is to protect. The, the, in, a, in an ancient castle, the last stand place was called the castle keep. It was called the keep. We would say a keeper, someone who protects the net. We're supposed to protect the command to love and do what pleases him. And this is his command. Here it is, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. What would happen to the church if we went back to that simple? Do you love God? Yep. Jesus is the Christ who was crucified, the resurrection is true? Yep. You're committing to, to be in a community of love? Yep. You're my brother. You're my sister. I don't care if you disagree with me about anything else. You're my brother. You're my sister. Now, I want to examine one of those phrases because it doesn't read well in English. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? One of the most basic hermeneutics you can ever do is just read different translations. Let me show it to you in a few different translations. Check this out. So, so the NIV says... The NIV says... I should probably stay facing this way. The NIV says, have no pity on them. The NLT says, show no mercy to them. I see it. I could do something. Nope, no mercy for you. The ISV says, withhold compassion from them. I see it. I could. But nah, no compassion for you today. The ASV says, shut up compassion. 
I see it. I could do something, but no. But my personal favorite is the King James Version. Here it is. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> How the English language has changed. You know, in the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowels on somebody. <laughs> it, it was a euphemism for being charitable, being generous. I'd like to go on record right now. I'd like all of you to keep your bowels shut in my general <laughs> direction. Uh, it was true in Jesus' day, too. In Jesus' day, their, their knowledge of medicine was so primitive. All they knew is that babies come out of there. So if babies, if babies come out of here, then that must be the center of life. So, so the life, the center of life, we are, the center of our life in our language is our heart. We, they would never say that. They, they would say it was in the, that, that life comes out of the bowel. It was, it, was, it was like in the first century, if you were dating someone and you said, um, sweetie, <laughs> I just love you. I want you to know. I, I love you with all my heart. She would be like, "Weirdo, you're disgusting, beeping thing." Uh, hello. Uh, but if you were dating the same girl and you said, "Sweetie, I just want you to know, I I love you with all my bowel." Well, she would be like, "Oh." You move my bells too. It's so nice. You make my liver quiver. Let me show it to you in the original language. The, original, the, King, the King James Version actually translates it the most literal. In the original language, it says, Kleose Tashplakna. That's the Greek. Kleose, close. Close, ta, the. Shplakna. Shplakna is bowel. Essentially, John is urging people that he says the best way to feel better is to not be constipated. The best way to feel better is to not shut up your bowel. Don't don't close your life source off to people. Essentially, he's saying nothing will make you feel better than opening your splachna. <laughs> we would say open your heart or, or, or don't close your inner parts. Don't close your heart off. Don't close your life source off. In their, in their world, it was don't don't close splachna. Don't, don't close the splachna. Essentially, John's key to entering life is simply this. Open your splachna. <laughs> Nothing feels better than opening your splachna. You, you, will, you will find that you will live life so much better if you wake up every morning determined to find needs you could meet and then do something about it. Which leads me to all kinds of questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's say it this way. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like, it's your story. You know what? I come to church. I, I read the Bible. I, I listen to stuff. I, I listen. But my life isn't really changing. I don't think it works. The problem is it works for the person next to you. And, and the problem isn't that you're a bad person. Maybe you're experiencing God with a closed splachna instead of an open one. Maybe we need to open our splachna to the presence of God. Maybe we need to live life like this instead of like this. Maybe me say it this way. Do we relate to someone who's hard to love? You know, that person at work, you just wish God would go ahead and take to heaven? Maybe the key to relating is to open our black knot. But the most simple application for today is simply this. Do you see a need that you could meet? Why don't we take a second right now and let's be quiet. Let's, let's, let's cancel the white noise out. And if, you're, and if you're willing and you're brave enough, I want you to pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, give me the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart 
about a need I could meet? Would you reveal to me right now about a need I could meet? Please don't burden me with things I can do nothing about. Is there a need I could meet? And if you're really brave, you could pray this prayer. Lord, don't give me rest until I meet that need. I want to live as a follower of Jesus. Would you look this way? Is there a need you could meet? In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there isn't at least one person who could write a check for six figures and never feel it. You mean to tell me that Todd and Tara Hendricks' vision for what this place could become couldn't hold that? There isn't a missions program you could give it to? There isn't something? Are you serious? Are you serious? You could write a check for six figures, never feel it. Open your schlepner, man. What else are you going to do with it? Die with it? You say, Shane, you understand, i got like 40 bucks in the bank. Okay, you're not the $100,000 person. <laughs> but you might be the $4 person. You can bless someone with four. You could do something. You might say, Shane, I have no money. I, 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 don't, I don't like... We need to move money off the table. Fine. Let's take money and put it over here and pretend like it doesn't exist. Here's the one thing that all of us have the same amount of. Time. Look, I don't know who's running the children's church today, but I know I love them. Why? Because without them, there'd be five-year-olds running around in here. And every mom in the room would spend half the service going, shut up, be quiet, come, shh, quiet, quiet. Why? Because I have no business speaking to children, right? You can't expect a five-year-old to listen to me. I'd be the worst children's pastor in the world. Could you imagine that? Hey, little boys and girls, we're going to talk about splatnas. <laughs> Everybody give me your finger, right? Right, what? What is that? Listen. Before you go eat lunch today, you should at least find the children's people and thank them. But I know this. Whoever's running it, I know this. They could use a few more hands. What's your story there? I can't show up 30 minutes early and be nice to children. Really? Open your them in. You say, no, Shane, I hate children. They're disgusting and expensive, and they wipe their nose, and they're just, I said, they're just disgusting. Okay, you're probably not our children's person, but nonetheless, <laughs> listen, Delano, and then they run the youth ministry here. Let me tell you something about teenagers, okay? In 25 years, they'll be running the joint, and you'll be complaining about what they do. But you, but you cannot complain about where the next generation takes the country or your church or your community if you're not willing to be a part of the people who mold the values of that generation when they're moldable. What's your story there? I can't give two hours a week to help mold the values of the next generation. Open your splatna, man. Listen, when I came up here, there was people who greeted me at the door to make me feel welcome. I'm sure that team could use a few more people. What's your story there? I can't show up 20 minutes early and be nice to people? I can't notice when visitors are here, I can show them where to go? Is that really your story? Because she understands there's Livermore in the summer, it's like 105. It's okay. We have spots inside for winers. It's fine. <laughs> Open your splatna, man. You might be the greatest musician in Livermore, and no one knows it. And if you are, now, I've got to be very careful with this. If you're not sure if you're good, get it checked out first, right? <laughs> By somebody not named Mom, right? 
But if you're great, what's your story? I can't show up an hour early and help create an environment? Open your splachna, man. You, could, you, you, you can't call Todd and, and these guys and go, hey, what, what missions thing are you guys, what, what, what can we do? Are you serious? And you want to wonder why you're mildly depressed? Are you kidding me? John says the key to entering life is to live life with an open splachna, not a closed one. You might be here thinking, shit, you don't know me, man. You don't know me. I'm a jerk. No one would want me on their team. Okay, a couple thoughts on that. One, if you know you're a jerk, here's an idea. Stop being a jerk, right? <laughs> but even if you're an introverted jerk, you could still be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from everybody. You literally would have to talk to no one. You just stand back there and turn knobs and make it sound good. That is your job. And if you're really introverted, we can get a camera, put you in an all-black suit, and you could be a camera ninja. Something can happen to where you can give your life to something bigger than you. John says, if you really want to live, you got to live life with an open shplakna. So may you be people, my brothers and sisters, who live every day looking for needs you could meet and then open your shplakna all over it. May you be people who live life that way. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We proclaim your king. We want to be followers of Jesus. We want to live life with an open shplakna. We give our life source away. If you're here today and you've never put yourself in a position to receive what Jesus did for you before the foundation of the world, why don't you just do that now? You don't need any words to say, no ritual, nothing. If you need something to say, you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, um, I'm choosing to put my trust in your version of my story instead of the one I'm writing on my own. And um, I'd love to uh, partner with you to bring your way of life here. And I'd love to connect with you. Why don't you just do that now? For the rest of us, why don't you just pray a simple prayer? Lord Jesus, where can I open my heart? Where can I open my shplakna on a need that I could meet? And then determine to do it. All I'm asking you to do is send one email, one text, one phone call to somebody in leadership here at the church, and it just goes like this. If you're willing to help me find my place, I'm willing to open my life source and help you guys build a kingdom church. I'm willing to give to this missions thing. I'm willing to give my time here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for letting me be part of your day. I thoroughly enjoyed it. God bless. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv. Thank you.